Good morning. This morning's scripture is from Acts 9, verses 1 through 31. Please follow along. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus, on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a, vi in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry me, my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. After many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him, but Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. 
So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. Thanks, Ron. We're continuing this morning in our walk through the book of Acts. And in this particular story, which is one of the great uh, conversions in history, we see kind of enacted the reality of God's grace, which we have already sung about this morning. God's profound goodness brought to bear on the life of someone, that someone, of course, being Saul of Tarsus, who we know better as the Apostle Paul. And we're going to just kind of walk quickly through this story this morning. Chapter 9 picks up the story, the narrative of the book of Acts from chapter 8. There, Stephen, you'll remember, has just been stoned to death by a furious mob, and Saul of Tarsus, who was there, gave his official sanction to the deed. And we read this, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation, but Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And from there, the narrative then follows Philip when he goes to Samaria, where an explosion of God's power takes place. People being saved, people being healed, people being baptized. Then there's the account of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And the eunuch surrenders to Jesus and gets baptized. And by the time, again, we get to the end of chapter 8, we're all excited and high-fiving each other about what God is doing. And there goes the church, just again, moving forward, moving forward quickly. We get so excited that maybe we forget the beginning of chapter 8. But chapter 9 and verse 1 quickly brings us back, reminding us that while all of this has been going on, the great persecution is still going on in Jerusalem. And Saul is, we read in chapter 9, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Breathing threats and murder. A kind of envisioning Saul flaring his nostrils every time he hears of a Christian or even the name of Jesus. Years later, looking back on this time, Saul would say this about himself. He said, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury, those are Paul's own words, in raging fury, I persecuted them, even in foreign cities. So this is not just religious zeal on Paul's part. This is pathological 
pathological hatred of the church. He was an extremist. And he had both the authority and the means by which to do something about it. And so his obsession then was to destroy the church, even, he says, in foreign cities. And so at one point, he makes a trip to a foreign city. He asks for and receives the authority to go to the city of Damascus so that if he finds any Christians there, and most likely, I think, the Christians who had been scattered there from Jerusalem, he might bring them back to Jerusalem as prisoners. And so he sets out with his company on this one-week journey to Damascus. Now, as he nears the city, an event happens that will ultimately divide his life into before and after. A light from heaven flashes around him. He falls to the ground. He hears a voice, but he doesn't know whose voice. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul, confused, responds in a literal translation, Who are you, sir? And then Paul hears the three words that will shatter his life. And we can hardly imagine the impact of those words. Who are you, sir? I am Jesus. Now, imagine how horrified, and that's not too strong a word, how horrified Saul must have been to hear those words. Imagine what that signified for him. Okay, we need to pause and remember what Saul's life had been like, fanatically devoted to the Jewish religion, a gold medalist in knowing and observing the rigid religious law, rabidly opposed to anything that might threaten his religion, convinced that he was actually fighting for God's honor, and then Jesus has come and strips away all of the laws that had so encrusted the actual word of God as to obscure it. Jesus repeatedly and often angrily calls the religious establishment, um, sorry, calls them on effectually removing God from the picture entirely. The religious establishment of which Paul was so much a part. Jesus speaks and even acts as if he were himself divine. And so Jesus is killed, and rightly so. My goodness, good riddance. But then there arises an ever-increasing mass of people who claim Jesus as their living Lord, who affirm Jesus' ways and words, who repeatedly spread this good news that Jesus is divine, that he is God's son. Blasphemy. And what's more, they basically claim that to get Jesus wrong is to get God wrong. Well, that just makes Saul livid. And so his full-time occupation is to exterminate these vermin who are a blot on the honor of God. And now suddenly, Saul hears, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Like a hammer on Saul's heart. I am Jesus, Saul, not dead, but risen speaking to you from the glory of heaven, from my place at the right hand of God, the God you think you're serving by despising me. I am the Lord, and as you execute and persecute my followers, you are persecuting me. And all of Saul's dearly held convictions that he was so willing not only to die for, but to kill for, 
Convictions about God, convictions about what pleased God, convictions about Jesus, convictions about Christians, convictions about God's view of him, Paul. All of these suddenly just absolutely wiped out in three words. I am Jesus. And Jesus continues then to speak. Rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. Jesus' assumption of authority over Saul's life. Jesus does not invite Saul into his service. He conscripts him. And the first communication from Jesus to Saul is command. And from now on, Saul of Tarsus will refer to himself as a slave of Christ. F.F. Bruce, in his wonderful book, Paul, Apostle of the Heart Set Free, said this. With no conscious preparation, Paul found himself instantaneously compelled by what he saw and heard to acknowledge that Jesus of Nazareth, the crucified one, was alive after his suffering, vindicated and exalted by God, and was now conscripting him into his service. There could be no resistance to this compulsion. He capitulated forthwith to the commands of his new master, a conscript he might be, but henceforth also a devoted and lifelong volunteer. Attempts to account for Paul's experience in physiological or psychological terms are precarious and inadequate to boot, unless they take adequately into consideration the fact that it involved the intelligent and deliberate surrender of his will to the risen Christ who had appeared to him. The risen Christ who from this time on displaced the law as the center of Paul's life and thought. Paul's life had a new center after his Damascus Road encounter. And that is the essence, isn't it, of true conversion? The heart of what it means to be a Christian? Because Paul was on one hand surrendering to the lordship of Jesus. He had a new master. But it was a joyful surrender. And in the letters that we have from Paul, letters that he wrote years later to various churches that we have in our New Testament, Paul repeatedly emphasized that to be a servant of Jesus was his great joy. Philippians 1, for me to live is Christ. Philippians 3, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Ephesians 3, to me this grace, this gift was given to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ, and so on. Jesus laid his authoritative claim on Paul's life, and Paul was filled with joy because of it. Isn't that what it means to be a Christian? If I'm very conscientious about obeying what I know God requires, living right and being good, and not just for the sake of religion, but because I genuinely respect the lordship of God, and yet I do not love him. There's no hunger to know him better. There's no joy in him. Isn't my Christianity only operating at 50%? 
And if I get all quivery at the songs that we sing, and I just love Jesus, and I'm so thankful that he's always there, and if I'm genuinely moved by the thought that God sent Jesus to die for my sins and for my forgiveness, but I don't in any meaningful way allow him any authority in my life, my gossip and my criticism go unchecked, I'm not personally engaged in God's great work of bringing people to himself. Jesus is not a conscious factor in any of my decision-making regarding career or house or spending or marriage. Then Jesus is not my Lord. And there, too, I am only half a Christian. The theologians have often spoken of our joyful duty to be a slave of Jesus and at the same time to revel in it to be at his absolute beck and call because you love him so deeply and because he loves you so much that you know he will never ask you to anything that is also not in your own best interest. That was Paul. After the road to Damascus, Jesus laid claim to Paul's absolute obedience, arise and go into the city and wait for further instructions, And Paul loved Jesus absolutely for the rest of his life. That is Christianity at its best and at its fullest. And the word that Paul would so often later use to capture that reality was the word, we've sung it, what? Grace. Grace. Undeserved favor. Paul had been a murderer and a persecutor of Christians, filled with hatred and violence against those that had anything to do with Jesus. And instead of striking Paul down, Jesus appeared to him, appointed him to his service, and forgave Paul absolutely. And Paul was forever amazed at God's grace. This is what he wrote to Timothy. I thank him, that is, the blessed God. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful or trustworthy, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserves full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, As the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul said, if you put all the sinners in a line and rank them, I would be at the very front. And I am astonished that God poured out, literally, grace and mercy. Not because I deserved it or earned it in any way, but simply because he's good and wanted to make an example of his mercy and grace to everybody else. 
Paul lived and breathed in the grace of God from that day to the end of his life. And Paul's story, which continues, shows that not only is God a God of grace and Jesus a king and a savior of grace, but that his people are also a people of grace. And just really quickly, Saul went to Damascus and there was a follower of Christ in that city named Ananias. And God spoke to Ananias and said, Ananias, I need you to do something for me. There's a man named Saul of Tarsus. I need you to go lay hands on him and heal him, for Saul had been blinded by his encounter. And Ananias said, Lord, not to question you or anything, but Saul of Tarsus, he exists to destroy people like me. I've heard about all the things that he's doing, and I know why he's here in Damascus. And God's answer to him was basically, just go. And Ananias went. And I don't know if you noticed it in the reading of the scripture. Does anybody have it in front of you, by the way, the text? What was the very first word that Ananias said to Paul? Brother. Brother. I wonder what it did to Saul's heart to hear that word from his enemy. And I wonder what the reality in Ananias was, his own relationship with God, that enabled him to say that. They were brothers now in Christ. It doesn't matter why Saul came to Damascus. It doesn't matter anything about Saul's history. It doesn't matter if any of Ananias' friends or family had been imprisoned or sent away or killed because of Saul. They were brothers. Brother Saul. After a long time, the, a, a long story is kind of compressed, compressed in this chapter, but after a long time, Saul goes to Jerusalem, wants to meet the apostles, and they're understandably leery. And yet Barnabas, good old, good old Barnabas, he comes to Saul's side, brings him into the apostles and says, I know this man now. I know his story in Damascus. I will vouch for him. And the apostles then welcome Saul into their own number, and Saul is able to go throughout the city preaching Jesus with the full support of the community of Christ. It's grace. Who's treated you badly? Who's treated you badly? Who can you think of in your own life and history who has hurt you, who has spoken gossip or hard words to you, against you, who has slandered your character, maybe who has hurt you, abused you physically? And maybe that person was a Christian at the time or claimed to be. Maybe that person has come to Jesus since then. I don't know. But if they are in Christ, then God has dumped grace on that person. And the question is, will you also? Will we be a people of grace? Because we have been given much. And grace to the point, I hope, of overflowing to one another.
don't, don't write other people off in terms of who God can favor. And don't write yourself off either. Sometimes we are tempted to think, God's got no good for me. There's no way that his plans for me are good. He, he hates me, or he doesn't trust me, or the very best, I might kind of squeeze into heaven, but kind of hang around the perimeter once I'm there. No, God's grace is greater than our sin. It is amazing. Don't write yourself off. Don't fall into the trap of thinking, even God can't forgive this in my life. God is more grace than we know. And in that grace is the ability to enable us to show grace to others and to acknowledge his grace to us. And it's only, I think, when we experience and begin to know the grace of God that we can at once be under his lordship and love him profoundly. It starts with God's grace toward us. Paul got that. I don't very often. But I ask for the ability to grow in that knowledge. Let's pray and thank God for his great grace. Oh, Lord, earlier I prayed about the kids in Brazil and how even pictures and images and testimony don't do it justice and we can't really understand the reality of their situation. And your grace is kind of like that. Hearing about it, singing about it, doesn't do it justice. And only our experience of it allows us to even just begin to understand how great you are in terms of your grace and your love and your mercy. And so I pray for myself and for us as your people that you will favor us with an increasing understanding and experience of your grace. How great your forgiveness is. How great is the good that you want to do in our lives. Please help us to get that. We, we need that so badly. And then also enable us to be a people of grace. Show grace to the people around us, generously and without finding fault. Do your gracious work in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Amen.